Well, today we are blessed to have our first baptisms in this new building. Isn't that great? (laughs) Praise God for that. May the Lord allow us to see many, many more baptisms in this place. This morning we're going to hear testimonies of faith in Jesus Christ and we're going to witness these believers being baptized both as a public profession of their faith in Christ as well as in obedience to Jesus' command to be baptized. And so before that happens, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And I want us there in Luke chapter 4 to see who Jesus truly is and some of the different ways that people respond to who Jesus is. We're going to see who Jesus is And we're going to see some of the ways that people respond to Jesus. Luke chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 14 and we'll read through verse 30. It says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we long to see Jesus, high and exalted, lifted up in our midst. Jesus, you said that if the Son of Man be lifted up, you will draw all men to yourself. 
So we lift your name today. We read your word and we long to see who you truly are. Help us to respond in genuine faith today as we are given a vision of who you truly are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see this morning who Jesus is and how people respond to who Jesus is. First of all, who Jesus is. In this passage, Jesus declares himself to be the promised Savior. Jesus declares himself to be the promised Savior. Verse 14 says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is just after Jesus had been tempted by the devil in the wilderness. You can read that in the first part of chapter 4. Jesus is in Galilee, he's ministering around that northern part of Israel and it's that region that is surrounding the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus' time, it consisted of about 240 villages and cities, most of which were very small and insignificant. Very small and insignificant like the town that Jesus grew up in, Nazareth. Jesus returned to this region, Luke says, in the power of the Spirit, We see here that Jesus was living a life of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the consistent picture we see of Jesus' life is a person who is wholly submitted to and walking in the Spirit's power. This helps us to better understand the power behind Jesus' remarkable teaching ministry. For his teaching was specially empowered by the Holy Spirit. During this Galilean ministry of Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching in synagogues. And while he taught in the synagogues, his teaching stood out from all the other teachers, as you might expect. It was very different. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, we didn't read it earlier, but look with me there. Luke 4, 31 says that Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Because Jesus taught in the power of the Holy Spirit, it gave his teaching a weightiness and an authority that marked it out as being different from all the other teachers. Likewise, when Jesus came to his own hometown of Nazareth, He entered the synagogue there on the Sabbath and he taught. Verse 22 says, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus' teaching was not only authoritative, but it was also gracious in its tone, in its content. Though his speech carried a weight of authority, Jesus wasn't abusive in his speech, but rather winsome. And this combination of authority and graciousness left his hometown audience absolutely speechless. They were amazed. They spoke well of him. And they were left in wonder, marveling at the gracious words, which seemed to be just falling out of his lips. Anytime he opened his mouth, it seemed that there was a weightiness and a graciousness about his speech that left people sitting up straight and listening attentively. He spoke so effectively and so graciously. 
So impressive and powerful was his teaching that the people said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's kid? I, I remember him. He, he and my kids used to play together. This can't be the same kid, can it? Are you sure this is Joseph's son? It can't be. This local boy whom they'd all seen growing up had gone away a while and now that he was back it was almost as if they didn't recognize him. They'd heard stories about Jesus' powerful teaching. At this point he's already been ministering for a year but now they heard with their own ears and they saw with their own eyes and they were utterly amazed. Verse 16 says that while Jesus was in his hometown there of Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. Luke says that this was his custom. Jesus faithfully attended synagogue. That's where a lot of his ministry was, and that's where the bulk of his ministry was on Saturdays. Because that's where the Jewish people gathered on the Lord's Sabbath. Jesus stood up to read from the scriptures on that day in his hometown of Nazareth. He was obviously invited to participate in some way. And the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him to be read from. You do know that in those days you didn't have one book. Certainly didn't have a codex like we have. These, this format didn't Evolved till much later. You had scrolls, these rolled up like a like a poster we would roll up and put in a tube. So these these scrolls were available in the synagogues, and and the scroll of Isaiah is handed to Jesus on this day. And so Jesus, knowing his scriptures well, portion of the scroll that Jesus chose to read from was from Isaiah chapter 61, almost to the very end of the book of Isaiah. It's an amazing passage that's full of hope and messianic expectation, a passage foretelling of the coming of the kingdom of God and of the coming Messiah who will rule over this kingdom. Beautiful and inspiring. And what's more remarkable, Jesus says in verse 21 that these words of incredible hope have been fulfilled in your hearing. Before your very eyes, these words of hope, which have been still in the future for so many generations of Jews before, have now come to fulfillment before your very eyes, in your very presence. Jesus is clearly pointing to himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He is the one who both proclaims the kingdom of God and secures the kingdom of God and all of its benefits for those who are citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus says here, as he reads from Isaiah 61... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus says, first of all, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God, Yahweh, 
the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, has anointed me. He has chosen me. He has sent me to preach, to declare, to herald, to announce the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom and of God's king, Messiah. And I want you to see here five descriptions of Jesus' mission as Messiah in these five lines from Isaiah 61. First of all, Jesus says that the Lord God, Yahweh, has anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. To preach the good news, the gospel. The good news of gracious forgiveness and blessing to all those who will receive it. The poor here are primarily the poor in spirit. Those who understand that before God they are spiritually bankrupt. That they have nothing to commend themselves to God. That they have in their account, their spiritual account, nothing that can buy their way into God's good graces. In fact, we know that we're all spiritually in debt. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's righteous standard, which is perfection. But Jesus has come and has been anointed and chosen to preach the gospel to the poor, to preach the good news to those who know they're poor, to those who know they spiritually have nothing that they come before God with empty pockets, empty accounts. Oftentimes, the poor in spirit are also those who are economically poor. That often goes hand in hand. Jesus will say later on in Luke 18.25 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. By the way, everyone in this room is rich by New Testament standards. It's hard for rich people to get into heaven. Why? Because they don't think they need anything. They don't need any help. They're self-sufficient. They have all they need. They've done all the right things. They've done enough, certainly. I mean, how else can you account for the prosperity that this person has experienced? Rich people are self-sufficient and often think this self-sufficiency carries over into the spiritual realm. And so they fail to be poor in spirit. That makes it impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to get to the point where you know you have nothing, where you know you have absolutely nothing to commend yourself to God and you throw yourself upon his mercy and his provision that he's made for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has come, he's been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, the good news of the gospel to the poor. Next, it says that Jesus has come and has been anointed to proclaim release to captives. In Luke's writings, release to captives or freedom to captives always refers to the forgiveness of sins it's always a spiritual element it's a spiritual freedom that Jesus is talking about those who are held captive to sin and guilt and a life of shame 
those who are held captive to the weight of their own sin. Jesus has come to proclaim release and freedom. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus has come to give release. You don't need to carry that burden anymore. You know the story of Pilgrim's Progress? Where Christian carries that burden, the weight of sin that holds him down. It feels like the weight of the world on his shoulders. But in the moment of faith, in the moment of salvation, that burden drops from his back and he's free of it. Today, you can be too. The weight of guilt, the weight of sin, the weight of condemnation can be taken away through faith in Jesus Christ. As he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came to proclaim release to captives. He came also to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Now Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, he certainly healed those who were physically blind, giving them back their sight. But this proclamation of sight to the blind certainly had, first and foremost, a spiritual dimension to it to give spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. Jesus has come to open blind eyes. The scriptures tell us that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of men. Our sin blinds us to the reality of of God's glory in Jesus Christ as his son. But Jesus has come to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind open blind eyes so they might see their need of Jesus to see their need of forgiveness I wonder this morning do you see your need are your spiritual eyes open to see that you can't do this on your own that you can't make peace with God by your own efforts your own strategies your own faithfulness you'll never get there you'll never arrive And if the Lord has opened your eyes that far, then surely he's opened your eyes to see the glories of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for you and for me. Jesus satisfied the righteous judgment of God on the cross as he bore our sins. Jesus came to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Next we see that Jesus came to set free those who are oppressed. This is similar to the proclamation of release to captives, except here it's not just a proclamation, but it's an actual releasing of those captives. Jesus comes to give freedom to those who are oppressed, oppressed by their sins, oppressed by their guilt. Finally, we see that Jesus came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus is saying here that there is a favorable season of the Lord and it has arrived. With the coming of Messiah, the favorable season of the Lord has arrived. In Isaiah 61, in that same verse, you can look it up later, 
the next line talks about the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus intentionally leaves that part out because that's for another day. That's for another time. The time of God's vengeance is yet future, but for now it's a time and a season of graciousness, of favorableness. And Jesus is saying here that the favorable season of the Lord is here. It's in your midst. It's present among you. Indeed, Jesus says it is standing before your very eyes. Jesus is the one who secures for us God's favor and ushers in this era of God's grace and mercy. Jesus is the one who makes the spiritually poor rich. Jesus is the one who releases spiritual captives and sets men free from spiritual oppression. Jesus is the one who brings sight to those who are spiritually blind. Jesus' ministry is all about explaining and securing the era of God's forgiveness. Jesus announces the era of God's forgiveness and Jesus forever secures that era of God's forgiveness through his own death, burial, and resurrection. This way Jesus is both prophet proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord and he is priest securing the favorable year of the Lord. After Jesus finished reading from Isaiah 61, Luke tells us in verse 20 that he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that synagogue on that day. What's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? Verse 21 says, He began to say to them today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was declaring himself to be the very fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He is declaring himself to be God's anointed messenger, God's chosen Messiah. He is the one who both declares the favorable year of the Lord and the one who secures the ground of this favor. This is who Jesus is. This is the Christ. This is Jesus of Nazareth sent from God the Father to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. To be the Messiah who would provide all that's necessary for you and I to be right with God. This is who Jesus is. So how do people respond to Jesus? Well, you would think everyone would just embrace the truth of who Jesus truly is, but sadly that's not the case. It wasn't in Jesus' day and it's not the case today. Look with me then at how people respond to Jesus with either superficial acceptance, seething rage, or saving faith. Let's look first of all at the response of superficial acceptance. We see this in verses 15 and verse 22. And this is the response of most people. This was the response of most people in Jesus' day. There were large crowds wherever Jesus went. He was absolutely surrounded and overwhelmed by the crowds. And he had to try to get away at times. And 
escape to, to lakes and escape to mountains because the crowds were just always pressing in and there was a, an acceptance of him, yes, but it seemed to be by and large a superficial acceptance of Jesus. In this own passage right here, look at Luke 4, 15. He began teaching in their synagogues throughout Galilee and he was praised by all. No one had a bad word to say about Jesus. His teaching was effective. It was authoritative. It was gracious. It seemed like any time he opened his mouth, gracious words were just falling out. Everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. Luke 4.22, and all were speaking well of him. And they were wondering at these gracious words falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Who is this kid? Who's this guy? I guess it's Jesus, but I don't remember him like that. This is the response of superficial acceptance. It's to know just enough about Jesus that you think you're a Christian. Say, well, I've always known about Jesus. I I grew up in church. I was in Sunday school. I went to VBS. I I did all the things. I've I've heard about Jesus since before I can remember, so I must be a Christian. I'm not opposed to Jesus. I'm not actively doing anything in my life to stop the message from getting out. I'm not opposed in any way whatsoever. Somehow you think that because you haven't outright rejected Jesus that you must be okay. You may even affirm certain truths about Jesus. You may even believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died as a sacrifice for sin. You may believe all those things and more, but you've never actually come to the place where you've repented of your sins and trusted personally in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You just happen to know and affirm a lot of truth about Jesus. You affirm that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's who he claimed to be. But James tells us that even the demons believe, and yet they're not saved. They affirm truth about Jesus as well. Superficial agreement with certain facts about Jesus never saved anyone. This is where vast amounts of people are today. They agree and go along with certain truths about Jesus, but they've never trusted in him as their savior. I wonder, does that describe you today? Superficial agreement. Non-opposition. That doesn't save anyone. Let's look at the second response of seething rage. We see this in this passage in verses 28 through 30. It says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city. And they led Jesus to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. 
But passing through their midst, he went his way. Though the initial response to Jesus' words were entirely positive, Jesus knew better. He knew that they had their own ideas about who Messiah was to be and just what true salvation was to look like. Jesus knew that they were far more interested in miraculous meals and in supernatural cures and in national deliverance from the Romans than they were in surrendering their lives and having their sins forgiven. And so he spoke into the midst of their superficial acceptance. He challenged them in their superficial acceptance of him. Rather than playing toward the crowds and milking them for more support and admiration, Jesus challenged their superficial understanding of salvation and their superficial understanding of Messiah. Jesus anticipates their next move and he says, No doubt you will say to me, Physician, heal thyself. Apparently this was a well-known proverb at the time, meaning that what you have done for others, do for us. You've been out there healing others and providing meals for others and doing all these miraculous things. Now bring it back home to your hometown. Show us a little love now, Jesus. Perform these same miracles in our midst. Let us benefit from our hometown boy who is made good. And that's made clear in the passage. They say, what you've done in Capernaum, do for us here in Nazareth. And so his fellow Nazarenes wanted Jesus to bring some of these blessings back home. But again, Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And that they are not really interested in receiving him, but only interested in the blessings he can provide for them. And so he counters their proverb by sharing his own axiom. He says no prophet is welcome in his hometown. The implication here is that Jesus is the prophet. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, knows that once they understand his message more fully, they're going to turn on him. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus shares with him in this context a couple of Old Testament stories about Elijah and Elisha. And they seem out of place to us. But clearly, the crowd understood what he was saying. Jesus is sharing in these two stories that God has a plan to extend saving grace beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, non-Jews. And when Jesus shares more fully God's plan to redeem even Gentiles, they turn on Jesus and even seek to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. And as it happened in Nazareth, even so it would happen throughout Israel. Jesus would be rejected by his own people. And finally in Jerusalem, where Jesus would not be thrown from a cliff but nailed to a cross. In that final act of defiance and rejection of God's Son and Messiah. Jesus challenges their superficial acceptance and it turns on a dime in their hearts to seething rage. You see, Jesus goes from preaching to meddling, right? Jesus goes from presenting himself as the one who has 
come to bring all of these good things to us, sight to the blind and release to captives. Oh, that's wonderful. And then Jesus calls you to take up your cross and follow him. Jesus calls you to die to yourself. And that will not stand for the rebellious heart. And superficial acceptance is quickly turned into seething rage. I pray that this doesn't describe you. But if it does, I pray that God would soften your heart this morning as you hear these words from Jesus. And that you will see that Jesus is truly the glorious and merciful Savior that he is. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn from your sins. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your anger and rejection of Jesus. Stop being unbelieving and believe. And that brings us to the final response, the response of saving faith. This is the only response that saves. The only response to Jesus that leads to heaven. The reformers rightly taught that saving faith involves three necessary steps. And these are Latin words, all right? Latin class has begun. You ready? Three words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia is first. This is the first step towards saving faith. Notitia, N-O-T-I-T-I-A. It is simple knowledge of the facts of the gospel. You got to start there, right? You have to hear the gospel first. You have to hear the good news first. We're not born with this knowledge. It's not written in the skies above us. This is a special revelation from God in the form of his son recorded for us in the word of God. We have to hear it. That is the first and necessary step in becoming a genuine Christian. True saving faith cannot come unless one hears the gospel message. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Someone has to declare the message. Someone has to share the message. Someone has to explain the message. And the first step in believing is hearing it. Hearing it. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. That's the first step, notitia. Got to hear it. Simple knowledge of the facts of the gospel. Second step, a census. A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. It is agreement with the facts of the gospel. True saving faith cannot come unless one hears the message of the gospel and then believes that message, accepts that message, affirms that message as being absolutely true. Again, you can't be saved unless you hear the message and unless you agree with the message. If you hear the message of the gospel but say, no, I disagree, I don't believe any of that, it's not going to lead to saving faith. You've got to hear it. You've got to affirm the truth. Notitia. 
Notitia is simply hearing the man, that man walked on the moon. A census responds and says, I believe that man walked upon the moon. It is affirming the facts we've heard as being true. And as good as that is, it's not enough to save. Knowledge and assent are both necessary for salvation, but by themselves they are insufficient for salvation. That brings us to the third and necessary step of saving faith, and that is called fiducia. F-I-D-U-C-I-A. Fiducia is not only hearing the truth, not only believing the truth, but also trusting in this truth for your very life. It is to lean upon the truth, to depend upon it as your lifeline. A drowning man can be thrown a lifeline from the shore. The drowning man can see the lifeline that has been thrown to him. He can agree that the lifeline is able to save him, but that lifeline will do nothing for the drowning man unless he grabs hold of it himself and holds on and is pulled in. That is the picture of saving faith. It is reaching out and grabbing hold of the lifeline of Jesus Christ. To see Christ for who he is, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. To acknowledge him as the Messiah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And to personally take hold of him by faith, believing solely in him, trusting solely in him alone is the all-sufficient sacrifice for your sins. I wonder this morning, have you done that? Have you heard the gospel you have this morning? Have you affirmed it as being true? I hope you have this morning. And have you personally trusted in? And are you trusting in today Jesus alone to save you from your sins? I trust that's the case. If it's not, I implore you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of Scripture is the person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Trust Him today. There's no reason for you to continue on in your blindness, in your captivity, under the weight of sin that is holding you down and holding you back. Look to Jesus, who is that great prophet and priest who has ushered in the favorable year of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we respond this morning in the only right way to respond, and that is in faith. We affirm that we have heard the gospel. We affirm that these things are true about you, Jesus, that you are the Son of God, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that you're the only way of access and peace with God, that your sacrifice on the cross was the all-sufficient price to be paid, that the guilt of our sins demanded And we take that final step of trusting in you alone to save us. We can't save ourselves. And so we confess these truths before you and we trust in Jesus alone. Thank you, Jesus, for being the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. 
in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.